invite you to grab it. And we're going to be in James chapter 1. The book of James in the New Testament is where we're going to be, but it's going to actually take me about 15 minutes to get there. But don't worry, the rest of the sermon will only be about 15 minutes. So, so that's 30 minutes. I'm not going to promise. All right. So what I want to do for the next eight weeks is kind of look at what are the pillars of the Christian faith, what makes us distinct uh, from every other religion, what makes a Christian um, a Christian. If I were to ask you this morning, uh, what do you believe about God? What does your uh, faith, what is your faith in? Um, let's assume that the majority of us are Christians in here, um, and so most of us would fall in line with most fundamental things. And I, I want to be careful with the word fundamental because I always think like there's this, um, not an AA group, but an FA group, Fundamentalist Anonymous. Um, I didn't coin that, but I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, so I don't want to make us look like we're a bunch of fundamentalists or anything like that uh, because that carries a heavy weight to it. Uh, but what are the fundamentals? And maybe a better way to put this is, what are our first things as Christians? And I think that most of us would fall in line with many of the first things. And then you would get a category, what I call secondary things. Uh, and secondary things would be uh, your view of eschatology or your view of the end things, uh, what happens uh, when Christ's return, um, whether we are pre-trib, post-trib, a-trib, or whatever trib, um, and if this makes no sense to you, okay, it's a secondary issue. It's not, in other words, it's not salvific um, in nature, but what are those things that distinctly marks us as believers? And here's the reality of it. Um, some of us have been believers for a really long time in, in this room, but there are a lot of us here who have just come to the faith. Uh, and, and maybe we're just going to be a little bit more honest. Maybe some of you are like, bro, I don't even know what category I belong in. Like I'm, I'm just kind of floundering all around in my faith. And, and maybe you're here and you're, you're picking a little bit of this religion, that religion, or this religion. And, and maybe my hope is that you would come to uh, the knowledge of what is truth, Right? Uh, truth is an interesting thing in our culture. Uh, we have what is absolute truth, but what is culture telling you? There is no absolute truth. What is truth to you? Truth is um, relative in a sense. Your truth is your truth, and then my truth is my truth. But there's a problem with that is if you are a believer, there's only one solid truth. And what is that truth? What is that pillar that we stand on that is the navigation for our soul? What is that? It's the word of God. So I want us to look at the word of God and I just want to accomplish uh, two things. Why is the word of God our pillar as Christians? And then what do we do? What does that application look like? Like we know the word of God. So what do we do? What do we do with the word of God? If it is our standard of truth, what do we do with that? Now, it's, it's an interesting thing when I say that uh, the Bible is what we stand on. It is um, our ultimate authority. Um, the top two questions I get before someone visits refuge, 
city. The, the very first question that I get is, what do I wear? <laughs> Isn't that funny? Clothes? I don't know. I mean, I'm wearing black jeans and a black hoodie with white vans. I mean, you wear whatever you want as long as you are fully covered. Amen? Otherwise, we will call security, and that won't go well for you. Here's the other question that I get. The, the second question that I get is, what is your church's stance on human sexuality? Now, here's, here's the thing with that. I can give your opinion. I can give culture's perspective. Or I can give them what our standard of truth is, and I can share with them, here's what the Bible says. Now, when I say, here's what the Bible says, why do we say that? Why do we say, well, the Bible says, well, what makes the Bible your authority? There are two possible answers to the question, why we say, well, the Bible says. The first one is, well, my mama told me. I was born into Christianity, and so I, I mean, my preacher said it, so it's right, right? And then what we would say, well, I've kind of grew up in this thing, and well, I mean, that Matthew guy, he said it was true, so it has to be, because he doesn't lie, and I don't, right? Well, let me break it to you. Your mom and dad are pretty fallible people, if you didn't know that already. Think about the most ridiculous, dumb things your parents have said to you. And let's think about some of the dumb things that we as parents tell our kids. Think about it. Your face will get stuck like that, will it? Right? If you don't wear proper attire, what do you do? You catch a cold? How is that possible? You can't transmit a virus by not wearing it, that's, that's dumb. Your parents are liars. You, parents, you here in this room, I am a liar. I do these things to manipulate my children. Don't judge me because I know you do it too, okay? And your parents manipulated you. Your parents before your parents, they did the same thing. It's this sinful nature that we all fall upon. I am, um, I'm, I'm getting off track here. Your parents are liars. That's the point. So, so why? Well, my mom said, okay, well, we just figured out that your parents are liars. Here's the other thing that we say that I just want to caution you on is, well, from my experience, dot, dot, dot. Well, Buddhists, they have an experience. Is that, is that real? Jehovah's Witness. You could fill in the blank with any religion, and I promise you, every single one of them, they had an experience. They felt something. So what marks us? Because, because some of us, we may had a goosebump or something when we read a scripture, or, or some of us, we may have walked in this room and heard the music, and we had a goosebump, and we felt something but if we're basing it off of why the word of God is true and we're basing it off of an experience, well, that just sets every other religion as correct because we've just based them off of an experience. So why is the word of God our standard of truth? It's more than what your mama told you. It's more than what your pastor has said. 
it's more than just the goosebumps and the experience that you feel when you read through the scripture. Um, Vodi Bauckham, an incredible guy that I would recommend you to check out. Vodi Bauckham, super intelligent guy on a realm that I will never be uh, on his level. He says this about the Bible. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment in specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. If we were to go apologetically, and here's what I mean by that. I don't mean like I'm about to say, I'm sorry for what I'm about to tell you. Apologetics is like the defense of or standing for a truth. And so when we get um, pastors or, or people who are defending their faith, what we're doing is we're going at it from an apologetic viewpoint. If we were to say the Bible is our standard, if the Bible is our truth, here's what we would say. Well, the Bible was written over a 1,500-year period of time by at least 40 different authors in three different continents with one message. How is it possible that 40 different authors from three different continents over a 1,500-year span could tell the same message? How is that possible? Well, there's only one solution to that. It is that it is because it is an infallible word from God. Why then is the Bible our standard of truth? It's because this historical document was written over 1,500 years by 40-something different authors in three different continents telling one message. And within every message and within every prophetic word that was given, it's all come to pass. I can, I can tell Gail a story. Gail, you'll tell Lisa. And then Lisa, you'll go back there and tell Frankie. And Frankie, you're going to tell Jerry. And then Jerry's going to go back there and tell Miranda. Miranda's going to circle around there. There's Danny right there. I'm going to tell Karen. And Karen's going to tell Carrie. Karen's going to tell uh, Taylor. And Taylor's going to tell him. And then, and then everybody. And then, by the time it got back to Robin, and Robin tells me we were talking about unicorns, when in the fact, Gail was probably just talking about her life story. Right? Like, we can't keep anything straight. How is it then that this central message was kept? Because it was a divine word from God. So now when I get these questions, you know, and I feel like sometimes they're a trap. Like, what do you believe about human sexuality? What do you believe about this? Like, you know, I I know what they're wanting me to say. Like, and I'm going to approach them with, well, here's what the Bible says. And when, if they were to ask me, well, why the Bible? Here's what I'm going to tell them. Because it's reliable. It is the truth. And we have no other truth. There are no other records that we affirm to. This is our standard of truth. In fact, I don't need to defend the Bible. Charles Spurgeon said that defending the Bible is like defending a lion. You just don't do it. I don't need to tell you how ruthless and how creepy lions are if you're in the room with it. You will feel your bones shaking because that joker's about to maul you to death. 
I don't need to defend the lion. The lion could defend itself. I don't need to defend the word of God. The word of God has defended itself. The word of God has stood the test of time. Now, is this word of God infallible? In fact, the word would um, teach that it is the infallible word and that nothing has been added to it. I just want to take you just through a few scriptures in Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said these words, for truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Like even if Jesus is talking figuratively here, the point he's making is that he will fulfill all of that which the Old Testament was pointing to. Because this is the real word of God. Here's another one. Um, while Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them and he says, what do you think about the Messiah? Who is, whose son is he? And they replied, David's. And he asked them, well, how is it then that David inspired by the spirit calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, and this is from uh, Psalm 100. Uh, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. So we see here that Jesus is even quoting to the T, the word of God. Just a couple of more in 2 Timothy 3.16, one of the more familiar passages that we have that defends this. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How many scripture is God breathed and inspired by God? This, thank you. This wasn't like a trick question. You were like, I don't know, you take one minus the 400 million words. and it's, it's all of it. Every word. Every word was inspired by God in Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. In, in Revelation 22, 18, 19, it says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this particular book, talking about Revelation. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about this book. So there's no new revelation to be made. Did you catch that? Here's one of the damaging things that we can do as believers is, is we can come to someone and say, the Lord said, and you kind of fill in the blank. If that the Lord said does not align with his scripture, then there are two possibilities for that person. They either need to be subjected to some type of home or they're a wolf. So you have just been, you're just either on the verge of possibly needing some medical attention or you're blatantly trying to deceive people. So, so there are no other revelations. Sometimes we, we, we are looking for someone to give us some divine word, some word, and, and insert whatever you think that is, I, I'm just suggesting that maybe can we just look in the Bible and see because God's word is life to us. 
God's word sanctifies us. God's word brings us closer to him. And if someone starts beginning to tell you, well, the Lord said this, the Lord said that, the Lord said this, and it does not align with the word of God, then run from that person. Run from them. In the South, this is pretty big. Um, You know, God told me, God told me, God told me. And I'm always like, bro, like, do you have him on like your favorite list in your iPhone? Because God speaks to you so much. We we knew this guy, I'm not going to name his name. This gentleman, he would always say, you know, God told me to do this. And he would go off and do that. And then a day, a week later, come back and say, you know what? I don't think I was supposed to do that. I'm like, God, you are like a woman changing your mind. No offense. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, you know, that's real. I mean, really like, but, but let's get down to it. Like if it's not here in the word of God, it doesn't align with that. Then, then again, your, your best option is to run from that person. So here we have, before we get into James, just a couple of versions of the Bible that we have. And then I want to get us into what do we do with all of this knowledge of the Bible and why is this Bible uh, the pillar on which we stand for our ultimate truth? Um, and we have various different versions of the Bible with, with even in our Christian uh, faith, we have we view the Bible in these different ways. We have an individualistic uh, Bible, which, which means that the Bible is all about me. Like, like here's what we do. We'll, we'll take verses um, out of their context and we'll say, that verse applies directly to me. And we think that the whole narrative and the story of Scripture, God was thinking directly about you, that God was making you the point of the story. Let me just kind of help you and lead you as best as I can. The Bible is about God. It ain't about you. You you are just fortunate that God chose you before the foundations of the earth and therefore beginning to walk in that redemptive story. So, So we're just privileged and honored to be about the story of God. But the story is not about Matthew. The story is not about any of us. But how many times we look at the Bible and we're like, man, how can I get this Bible to, to make me a better person and to be about me? And you know, we'll quote like Jeremiah 29, 11, I've, uh, the plans I have for you, they're going to prosper. You see, they're going to prosper me. He, he's going to prosper me. Well, maybe that scripture was about Israel because they just had been in captivity. The Bible is about God. That's the story of the Bible. That's what makes it so unique is that they never deviated from that main central message. Another view that we have falls in line with this individualistic Bible is that we think the Bible is this consumer Bible. What, what can the Bible give me today? What, what can I read into this scripture that I can get God to rain blessings upon me? And this is, this is how many of the prosperity preachers in that movement read the Bible. What, what can I do to get God in my favor? If I have faith, then God will be in my debt and he'll owe me something. What a pathetic God that you have. 
and a weak God that you think that God owes you something or that God is, is in your debt. That is not the sovereign God of all creation. And the view we have is, is one that we have to be very careful with, and it's the progressive view of the Bible. And we, and we take those hot cultural topics, we take those questions that are asked of me all the time, and we, and we want to, and, and, and there's a tendency in our heart to be like, well, well, maybe that was just for them. Maybe that was just uh, for their time and, and for their period. You know, surely God would change his mind because, you know, culture has changed so much. Like, I'm, I'm certain God changed his mind on his view of human sexuality. I'm certain God has changed his mind on his view of murdering and in all of these different things that we want to say. Do not buy into the progressive view of the Bible. There is one truth and one truth alone. And then many of us, including myself, we, we, we want to read through the lens of just being an American, right? You know, America, it's, it's, it's in the Bible somewhere, right, preacher? You know, this is our cultural Christianity we, we, we view that the Bible is very similar to American culture. Jesus is a Democrat. Jesus is a Republican. We can vote for Jesus. Seriously? You don't vote for a king. He's not either of these political parties. He's the king of the universe. He does not vote. You don't vote for him. You don't elect Jesus. According to my Bible, he's elected you. That's the king. So be careful as you read through your Bible that you're not viewing things uh, through these various different views. But let's see how we read the Bible. In James chapter one, there's just one little point that I have, and I promise you the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes will go slowly. In James chapter one, there's going to be this interesting thing because we know that James was the half brother of Jesus. Um, And here's a little apologetic thing for you. um, If you want to know how and why your Bible is accurate, Uh, James at one point thought Jesus was a loony. Like he just thought he was a lunatic. In fact, in Mark's gospel, some of his brothers, and we believe James was a part of this, they were wanting Jesus to be locked up because they thought they was crazy. Now, come on, granted now, if my brother comes out of the room and, and he's like, I am Jesus, I'm Messiah. Like I'm calling dad, dad, hey, Something's a little off, right? I mean, look at these people, David Koresh, all of these, Jim Jones, who had this Messiah complex. They're crazy. And so here's James, who once thought his brother, half-brother Jesus was crazy. Now, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, devoted and the pastor over Jerusalem. In fact, um, 
his life was ended in persecution and they led him to the top of a roof and they would tell James, recant the name of Jesus. In other words, like deny Jesus. All right. Remember, few years prior to this, he's denying the, Jesus as the Messiah. Now, as a pastor on a roof, religious leaders telling him to deny Jesus as the king. And James says, I cannot deny Jesus. They toss him off the roof. He's still alive. And then they begin to pelt him with rocks. Pastor James, half-brother of Jesus, wants to kind of realign us with our view of the word of God and listen to the word of the Lord in James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he gives a few analogies here or two, a couple of illustrations. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Short-term memory loss, who knows? But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing James gives us two contrasting illustrations about what we do with this Bible, right? What do we do with this reliable source? What do we do with this word that was written over a 1,500-year span by 40-something different authors in three different continents? What do we do with this word, this truth? James tells us, you do the word. You, you do the word. There is a spiritual condition called spiritual obesity. And it looks like us consuming so much of the word of God. We want to read and read and read and read. And then we forget to put what we've read into practice. James compares you to this one illustration that he gives is you are like this guy who goes and looks in the mirror and finds and sees all of the flaws that are in him and he walks away and doesn't do anything. Now, there were no actual mirrors like we have today, but a mirror for them would have been something like a brass where they look at it. If you've ever looked into brass, it, you kind of have to look really, really close to kind of see yourself. So they're looking at this form of a mirror and they have to look very close and they see, oh, I've got spinach in my teeth. Oh, I've got a blue hanging out my nose. And they see it. And here's the crazy thing. They just walk away. They, they walk away with a dangling piece of lettuce hanging out their mouth. I'm like, hey, y'all, how you doing? Um, I think there's a <clears throat> lettuce in my teeth. I know it's crazy. That's what James just said. Like you've looked intently into the word of God and it has been a mirror to your soul. And you, it has exposed you for who you are. It's exposed you as the liar. It's exposed you as the manipulator. It's exposed you as the idolater. It's exposed you for all of the sins that you have committed. And you see that and you're like, hmm, okay. Interesting. And you walk away. 
Like how many believers, like, do we know, like, we see, we, we read the word of God. We see that the word of God says this about us and it reveals this is what the word of God does. It's a mirror to our soul. And we see what is exposed to us as, and we just walk away. We want to be consumed by it. We want to consume more knowledge and we want to, we want to be, we want to be viewed as like the guy who knows, or the, the lady that knows all of the things, but we don't do anything about it. We're just going to tell everybody what we know. It was surplus of knowledge, and we have a, a, a deficit of obedience. And that's what James's point here is with the word. Like, we want to know the word. Yes, know the word. But if that's all we're doing with the Bible, with this truth that we stand on, then there's something going to happen to you. You're going to read it, and you're not going to do anything about your life. You're going to read the word and you're going to be known as the guy who knows all of the Bible. And then you're going to continue to treat your spouse one way. And then you're going to continue to treat your children one way. Then you're going to be continuing to, you know, be known as that guy at your workplace. You've, you've, you've got so much surplus of knowledge that your heart is just not being obedient to what you know. Um, there's a pretty cool story, and I say pretty cool loosely. And, and one, of the, one of the minor prophets, those guys were, were beasts, okay? In fact, so much, um, if I were to invite one of the minor prophets in the Bible to our church, I guarantee you, maybe two of you will return, okay? They were, they were just, they were savage. I mean, Amos the prophet he sees over in the land of Samaria these people who have a wealth of knowledge, a people who have a wealth of sur- supplies. They have, they have everything, and yet they're not doing anything wh- with it. <laughs> and so Amos is like, you know what you guys are like? You guys are like those fat cows of Bashan who take in all that they can but never give out. That's, that's kind of what James is talking about here, that, that you, you receive, you consume, you, you, you read, and then you never give out of what you have heard. Amos would have come in here and be like, hey, James, you know what they are? They're fat cows. They're just going on about his business. And then he gives this contrasting view of, of how we do this when... In verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed and is doing. The active doer, he hears the word, he internalizes that word. And he uses that word to transform his life. He obeys the word and he goes out and does what the word says. In other words, this, this word, this message, it compels him to act upon it. This isn't a message of we are being saved 
as we are doing things. It's not this works-based message that you have to do this in order to obtain this blessing of salvation from Christ. No. Grace is what has saved you, and grace is what is driving you to act upon what you know. In verse 24, he looks at himself, goes away, verse 25, but he looks into the perfect law, the the law of liberty. He's talking about this truth, this liberty, the gospel message that has set him free from himself. And he sees himself the way God sees him. I see my need, I see my need, my sin, and then I see my need for Jesus Christ. And then what can I do about it? So what do we do with this? Like, okay, I'm not going to be like the weird guy who's looking in the mirror and he sees all of his flaws and he notices that his zipper is down and he's not going to zip it up. I'm not going to be that guy. All right? We cannot be the guy and the gal with our spiritual zipper down, just walking around. Terrible analogy. Just hang with me, okay? And and just walking around as if nothing is wrong. No, we, we look at the word of God. The word of God looks at us and it reveals who we are. And then we are to obey what the word says. And here's this practical thing that James says. And in this verse 26, so if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Man, I just said the R word. Bro, we don't want religion, we want relationship. How many of you have said that? Come on, be honest. How many of you at least have heard it? Let me help you. Religion is not a bad word. You know what a bad word is? False religion. I wasn't going to say a bad word. All right, everybody calm down. I almost did last week, but you know, sometimes I just really get into a cadence and a rhythm and my wicked self shows up sometimes. False religion is bad. False religion is bad. Real religion is good. If I said I'm a religious guy, that's okay. As long as what I say religion, that it is pure and undefiled before God, the father who is this, and then I do these types of things and that my religion makes good on what I'm saying. And that's the point of what James is saying. Hey, you see yourself in this mirror and, and you don't, you, you don't want to do any change. You don't want to do anything about it. You know what? Fine. You, you're not going to be under that blessing of salvation that God has for you. But for those of you where you have been saved by grace and grace is motivating you to do something, here's what it looks like. Grace is then motivating you to meet needs around you. Grace is motivating you to see, what can I do for the orphan? What can I do for the widow? What can I do for the marginalized? What can I do for those in our own body who are sick? What can I do? That's what it means to know the word and to do the word. You you know the word, and that word has been revealed to you by the grace of God, and then the grace of God drives you to obedience to do something. 
This is why the word of God is so important for us. It's why we stand on this word of God because it is this very word of God that is driving us to obedience, that is driving us to make, to do something. You know, like think about our culture today. Like so many of us are relying or hopefully so many, maybe that's a lower number, but a lot of us are looking towards different things to do something about my situation. We look to the government. We look to a relation. We look to all of these different things thinking that they're going to be the answer to my need. And, and here's the problem. Jesus is the answer to what you need, but Jesus has commissioned a church to meet those needs. That where we shouldn't be looking towards the government or whatever kind of entity that you can think of to try to fulfill you and give you what you need, but the church is here. So we know the word and we do the word so that the people around us can say, hey, that Refuge City Church, they're doing something. They're, they're doing the word of God. He gives us this example of orphans and widows. And this time women would be with kids. And if the husband dies, the woman and kids were left in a very vulnerable state. So it was easy for other men to come in and take advantage of them, possibly putting them in slavery or prostitution. So James is saying these real Christians to this church who is the minority at this point, who is being marginalized, and even in their marginalization and even in their minority status, he tells them, you are still being aware of the people around you and doing something. Why? Because the word of God has revealed it to you and you have to go do something about it. Instead of you praying, will God send somebody to do something? Sorry, he did. It's you. It's us. Spurgeon said, and I've probably quoted him three times already today, but Spurgeon says, if you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it is actually brought to pass, you can only discover it by his word. His word is truth His word is what we stand on. His word is infallible and his word is our standard by which we view all things and by which we stand. And we not just know the word, but let us be a people who do the word. 